This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Historic Souvenirs presents A Cyclist's Intrepid Journeys, adapted from his book Pedal Power. Roy Sinclair and his partner Harlico from Japan explore the rails, the trails and campgrounds of Switzerland on their bicycle tour of Europe. Sleepless nights by firelight, the stranger in this town, heard by talking long and singing songs, I have laid my loneliness down. So long descend with peaceful friends, there is no richer wine. We've reached the rail junction at Switzerland's Interlaken, accompanied by our bicycles. Once we unload them, it's feeling good to be pedalling again. Out of Interlaken leads a flat road two kilometres to the campground. With small tents like ours, we've neighbours who are also bike travellers. Along a lakeside path, with weather still warm, though rain is forecast, we delight to watch the lake steamers and bright red trains just over the water, all in a rush to keep to time. People picnic, swim and kayak. Bliss is so easy to find in Switzerland. Next day dawns with the weather still holding. When we reach the train station, video screens show clear weather up on the 3,454-metre Jungfrau summit. I have longed this day since reading the Austria climber Heinrich Harrer's memoirs of how he and other mountaineers made the first ascent of the Eiger's treacherous north wall in 1938. My copy of his book, The White Spider, is an inspiration, a gripping account of how mountaineers entrust their lives to slender ropes dangling over certain death if a piece of rock or ice dislodges. It confirms my belief that I could never be one to have the courage to climb and conquer virgin peaks. However, my father has such courage, a pioneer Canterbury mountaineer. He came here to the Swiss Alps and, at the terminal of one of the railways, bought me a book, Young Fro Express. It's from that terminus of one rail company we're embarking on our journey through the long Eiger Tunnel. That line from here to Jungfraujoch, built mostly in the late 19th century, may be regarded even today as a masterpiece of engineering. While New Zealand's engineers wrestle with technical difficulties over constructing a two-kilometre rail tunnel on almost level gradient under the port hills between Christchurch and Littleton Harbour, the Swiss are working on an alpine railway tunnel for almost eight kilometres with 30% gradient under the peaks of Eiger, Munch and the Jungfrau itself. Cog railways and electrification are no more than experimental. No wonder then that the creator of the Jungfrau project is a visionary, Adolf Guerzella. His opponents include farmers, 
dubious about belching steam engines spooking their cattle in the solitude of mountain meadows. To appeal to tourists' curiosity to know what's above the clouds, they often buy tickets to the mountain tops with one railway and descend on another company's rail net. It varies the view. It's all to do with the Swiss love of trains and railways. Now to experience it too. Auf der Schwäbische Eisebahn gibt's Kaffee, Haltstationen, Sturgedulm und Biberach, Meckerbeure, Donnersbach. Holla, 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 la, holla, 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 la, Sturgedulm und Biberach, Meckerbeure, Donnersbach. Auf der Schwäbische Eisebahn gibt's auch viele Restaurationen, wo man essen und trinken kann. Alles, was der Magen mag. Holla, 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 la. Bernie's Oberlandbahn opened in 1890 with small, well-muscled steam locos chuffing up from Interlaken, a railway electrified in 1914. Over two parts of the line, the company has a centre cog system, where the gradient reaches 12%. <laughs> Swiss love of railways extends to repurposing former standard equipment for a new lease on life. We see, for example, that quaint veteran electric locos are still on shunting duties. Curiously, displayed in one carriage is an advertisement, claiming we'll soon be seeing the world's highest watch shop. It's a comparatively short journey to Lotobuenen, in no time we're alighting to cross the platform to board the veteran, dinky, green and beige train of Wengenaufbahn. Its tracks are a narrower gauge again, 80 centimetres apart. We passengers perch on a strangely curved design for wooden seats in the narrow carriage, like a toy railway. But flash baggage piled high on a wagon behind reveals this to belong to the truly rich tourists who are hoping it won't get wet. On another railway track, men assemble a work train, its wagons so small and lightweight they may be pushed together by hand. On our 10-kilometre rail trip with Wengenaupan, the rides are tad bumpy for having to engage the centre rail cog needed on its 19% gradients. That would be really steep were it a mountain road and a tough climb for cyclists, while New Zealanders may regard even a 3% gradient as a steep incline on a railway. To cope with the steepest of theirs, the Swiss use a principle similar to Shimano cycle gears. I ponder this brilliant idea 
of slipping into gear another cog that slots into the center rails of Swiss railways, just as on bicycle chains. We arrive at an alpine train station of Kleiner Scheidberg. Beyond are impressive glaciers that lure others to this Aladdin land. Engineers today marvel at the complex planning their predecessors used for building safe railways and efficient steam power for locomotives of the 19th century. So tief im Böhmerwald, da liegt mein Heimatland. Es ist gar lang schon her, dass ich von dort bin fort. Doch die Erinnerung, die bleibt mir stets gewiss, dass ich den Böhmerwald gar nie vergiss. Wisdom was theirs to envisage back then an 8-kilometer tunnel at an average gradient of 30% burrowed through these gigantic alpine peaks of the Eiger, Merch and Jungfrau itself. Nowhere was there an existing model to modify for these mountains. Cog railways and electric traction still being experimental, it takes a visionary to foresee that possibility. Adolf Guiazella, that man must be a genius. Born in 1839, he lived only 60 years. His eventful life is marked by his consuming passion for solving engineering challenges. His family sent him as a young man to study textile mills in England, America and Egypt to purchase cotton and look to modernize. In his travels, he admires the feat of building the Suez Canal and set up his own textile industry in Switzerland. It's a time before its mountains are properly surveyed. Es war im Böhmerwald, wo meine Wiege stand, Es war im Böhmerwald, wo meine Wiege stand, im schönen Böhmerwald. There are stories of Adolf and his young daughter on walks in meadows of Jungfrau, little spoken between the two as he draws sketches of the terrain from which to plan the route of a railway to the heavens. He submits his final plan, applying in 1893 for a concession to build it, letting thousands of tourists enjoy the beauty of the high Alps. A man of humanity, Adolf Guiazella conducted scientific experiments with guinea pigs running a treadmill inside a large glass jar to verify that workers on the rail route would suffer no ill effect from exertion at high altitude. For all his care, six who work on the Eiger tunnel die when a blasting charge explodes unexpectedly near. His sons continue his work after their father dies of pneumonia. It takes 14 years to finish the railway, 
It opens in 1912 as Switzerland's first rack and pinion railway powered by electric locomotives. There's still one of these quaint, box-shaped Jungfrau locos. Its workings reveal all the complexity and neatness of a much-enlarged Swiss watch. Our train stops twice in the tunnel, first at Eigerwand, in the Eiger's Wall, with a passageway leading to viewing windows, though much of our view is obscured by ice particles dripping. But the next station offers expansive alpine views, looking out into what resembles those realistic dioramas seen in museums. Increasingly, I'm aware my breathing has a slight shortness due to the high altitude. More than 2,000 metres up in the Swiss Alps, Kleinenscheidig is a large rail station, standing astride a collection of tracks of varying gauges. We join the crowds boarding the next surface of the Jungfrau Railway. Trains wait in the station yard rather than at the platform. It's all rather casual, even informal, as mountain railways ought to be. It seems the veteran maroon and beige Jungfrau train on an adjoining track is reserved for special charters. The top railway station is still almost 1,400 metres higher up. As with many Swiss trains, the windows slide down, making it easier to capture on camera the Swiss chalets, green meadows, and restful chalet farmyards, cowbells dingling. Glorious it may be, but our patronising mass tourism is a culture shock after our cycle touring and simpler routines. Mass tourism, fixated on travel brochures, is a trap for folk lacking in imagination. Opposite us sit two women, showing no excited anticipation of reaching our next daring destination. In Japan, they may be described as being obertarian, it's slang denoting ageing women who are blatantly rude, selfish, and complain about the draught of fresh mountain air through the open window. They ask nearby passengers to close their windows, regardless of it arising when our train's going beneath the glaciers of the Eiger and Mönch, and ahead is a long loop tunnel. Two and a half hours after leaving Interlaken, we arrive at the top of Europe, at 3,454 metres above sea level, we're as high as New Zealand's second-highest peak, Mount Tasman. Surrounding peaks of the Jungfrau and Munch are slightly higher than Auraki Mount Cook. Jungfraujok Station is like a self-contained, stylish shopping mall. Its several levels have crowded elevators. Yes, we do find the world's highest watch shop and post box. Cafes and restaurants look on the world's finest dining views. It's amazing. Outside, we access a short snow walk leading away from the building. There's an eerie whiteness on the Aletz glacier that moves relentlessly down 24 kilometres towards the River Rhone, a river reaching 800 kilometres through Lake Geneva and Jura Mountains gorges to its delta in the Mediterranean. 
looking straight down through a grating to a jumble of ice pinnacles and crevasses. I feel a little giddy above so immense a drop, trusting the steel to support me. Sunlight slants through brewing clouds, descending to rain upon the train as it emerges from inside the mountain. It's luck that allows us that fine weather we enjoy at Jungfraljok. Back at our Interlaken camping ground, we chat with our neighbours in the next tent. She's fit, attractive, communicative. He's dour, says little. They're from Zurich. Much as Harlako and myself, they seem mismatched. They advise us it's a cruisy ride cycling to Lucerne. We see why when we do. On a picturesque lake, Lucerne, hemmed in by mountains, draws tourists to its feudal walls and watchtowers, to bridges decorated with paintings and covered in to avoid exposure to weather, and its 15th century parish church. Ready to face the rain if need be, next day we roll up our tent to head off in the direction of the Brunig Pass. I flick through gears to find one to match the steepening gradient and spin my pedals in earnest along the undulating paths of Lakes Route 9. Taking the track, we rocket up its steep paths through forests, attractive chalets overlooking the equally beautiful Brenzesee. Well marked on the cycleway are both points of interest and hazards. One sign declares the part of the path we just climbed has a 20% gradient. Another emphasizes its steepness by depicting a bike tumbling down steps. Our route is occasionally dissected or joins other cycling routes. It's also neat, a far cry from the tangled urban jungle of Japan, the unsightly chemical industries of England, and the architectural hotchpotch of rural New Zealand. Here in Switzerland... Wooden chalets are typically painted in a rustic brick red, a pleasing design enhanced by boxes of summer flowers suspended from eaves or balanced around balconies and window ledges. Here in Switzerland, wooden chalets are typically painted in a rustic brick red, a pleasing design enhanced by boxes of summer flowers suspended from eaves or balanced around balconies and window ledges. Meadows, climbing mountainsides to look like mowing lawns. Harlico is observing even the graffiti of Switzerland has the hallmark of neatness not noticeable elsewhere. Beyond the lake. The bike route leads along a level valley toward the next town, Meiringen. After Sir Arthur Conan Doyle visits nearby Reichenbach Fall in 1892, he sets his next crime thriller here for the detective Sherlock Holmes showdown with the professor, reputed to be the Napoleon of crime, Professor Moriarty, in The Final Problem. The two fictional characters meet at the Reichenbach Falls, where Moriarty leaves Sherlock Holmes for dead. It's a fiction his Swiss fans commemorate every 4th of May. In the basement of an English-style church is the Sherlock Holmes Museum. In London, we had seen the huge statue of Sherlock Holmes standing outside the Baker Street subway. 
Here, beside a cafe where we lunch on scrumptiously filled baguettes, is a life-sized Swiss tribute in bronze to the English sleuth in a corner of a town park. He's cast in character, wearing the iconic deerstalker cap and looking in pensive mood, perhaps pondering how his famous exploits of English literature are adopted by the Swiss as their own. This statue embodies specific clues for enthusiasts having sharper eyes than mine to detect obscure symbols relating to 60 of Sherlock Holmes' stories. Though she comes from Japan, Haliko knows his novels better than I do. Though Switzerland stays neutral in World War II, its tourism collapses. As an alternative, the federal government recruits a workforce for building an airbase near Meiringen to keep citizens gainfully employed. It remains the only Swiss military airbase regularly assigned to the mountain caverns where its aircraft are secure inside, ready to launch into the air to counter any hostile force. Our road narrows, passes paddocks of dairy cows. They crane over fences, befriending us an odd-looking pair of cyclists in bright rain gear, the valley edged by near-vertical mountain walls so high they dissolve into cloud above, from which issue silver threads of waterfalls in the Alps. Our track rises, the perfect mountain biking trail. Forest rises from both sides of the gravel. Not far off the main route to the path, our gravel path will climb six thirst-inducing kilometres to reach the sealed road. Now the rain stops, leaving in its wake a warm, humid afternoon which coincides with the anniversary of the Swiss Confederation. Once the Congress of Vienna of 1815 fully establishes Swiss independence and European powers agree to permanently recognize Swiss neutrality, Switzerland enjoys prolonged peace with its European neighbors. However, Tensions dividing the Swiss cantons boil over into battle in 1847. Civil war which brings home to the Swiss the futility of fighting. The Battle of Yisikon is the worst. With 37 dead and about a 100 wounded, it's the bloodiest of the war. It is, to date, the last pitched battle in the history of the Swiss. It's also the first battle of history where wagons are specifically set up as horse-drawn ambulances staffed by volunteers, nurses from Zurich and others. It's the beginnings of a disciplined, effective, recognized relief of suffering, persecution or displacement of people caught up in conflict, needing food, shelter, safety and medical treatment. The Swiss are good at it. In 1859, a Swiss businessman, Henri Dunant, travelling across the Kingdom of Italy to meet French Emperor Napoleon III, comes upon the Battle of Solferino's aftermath. The town is devastated, fields filled with wounded and dead. He witnesses a lack of even basic care for wounded soldiers, regardless of which side. Henri Dunant abandons his travel plan, Instead, he sets to helping with treatment and care of the wounded, urging the local population to pitch in. Once home in Geneva, he writes of his experience in A Memory of Solferino. 
sending copies of it to politicians and military leaders across Europe. Henri Dunant advocates that nations each form a voluntary relief organisation to nurse wounded soldiers in case of war, guaranteeing by international treaty they'll protect victims as well as all medics and field hospitals. It's the beginnings of Red Cross. Its symbol is the colours of the Swiss flag, reversed. Unwittingly, we're descending the Brunig Pass at a rollicking rate on a day that relates to another event that revolutionises the course of history. Swiss Confederation Day. It's a wonder its contrasting cultures could be welded into one. As happens with regions once divided among mountains, people historically isolated by geography are soon evolving dialects of the original language. Switzerland is blessed with many, but it nourishes the notion of independence. We'll leave the Bernese region of High Alps once we drop over the Brunig into the Obwalden Valley. As we drop steeply below the tree line, scattered bucolic villages flash past. Their chalets cling precariously to rock above Lungerese. Picture-perfect scenes on postcards. The Golden Pass railways skirting the slopes of the mountain. Having spotted Camp Obzi on the lake's headland, we stop to investigate. As foreigners, we receive an offer to be part of a live broadcast from the camp on Swiss radio. If we cooperate, we'll camp free. Radio shy Harlico takes a soothing shower to relax her strained muscles while I front up to Carolyn Lucana, well known for her sport and fitness reporting. She asks about what we carry by way of any special treats. So I say, we always carry too much, but never so much that we can't include a small bottle of green chartreuse from the French Chartreuse Mountains. When the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf I dies in the 13th century, resenting unscrupulous bailiffs levying heavy taxes, cantons of Schweiss, Uri and Unterwalden sign a pact, a pact among themselves. The date, August the 1st, 1291. And others join later, expressing solidarity. That's the date the Swiss celebrate their independence in festive mood over beside the lake at Lungen. Local fireworks and a bonfire valiantly compete with high-caliber shots from military-style weapons in the distance. They wear splendid traditional Swiss attire and head home once the rain returns, dampening the blazing bonfire by the lake edge. By this time, Harlico and I are cocooned within sleeping bags in our tent. Still celebrating Swiss independence next day, Harlico spots a very sexy blue bikini as she window shops while cycling through the village of Giesville. Paying for it adds my blessing to the occasion. She's never worn a bikini before. We order coffee and a scrumptious sandwich of crusty bread loaded with cheeses, lettuce and gherkins. Is that why they live long up here? Do 
Join us at the same time next week for another edition in Historic Souvenirs, The Adventures of Roy Sinclair and His Partner Harleko, based on the book Pedal Power. Free FM 89.0 is proudly supported by New Zealand On Air. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.